Hey there, educational rock stars. Are you feeling overwhelmed with lesson planning for your English language learners? Well, I've got some exciting news for you. Introducing our upcoming free webinar, Simplify Your Approach, Three Time-Saving Routines for ELL Success. Join me for a power-packed 45 minutes that's set to revolutionize your teaching strategy. In this webinar, we'll dive into three practical, easy-to-implement routines that will not only enhance your ELL teaching methods, but also save you hours of planning time. Yes, hours. So whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, these insights are tailored to help everyone make the most of their teaching time. Plus, you'll leave this webinar ready to implement these routines the next day. So mark your calendars for our two upcoming dates. I don't want you to miss this opportunity to transform your ELL lesson planning. To reserve your spot, simply sign up at www.equippingells.com slash routines. Trust me, your future self will thank you for it. I'll see you at the webinar. You are listening to episode four of Equipping ELLs. Hey there, today you are in for a treat. We have on the show Brooke Batwell, who has been educating and motivating adolescent English language learners to embrace their multilingualism for six years. She's currently an English as a second language teacher at the middle school level in Virginia Beach. Her love of language learning derives from her experiences living abroad and learning German in Vienna, Austria, and Spanish in Barcelona, Spain. Makes you want to travel, huh? (laughs) She has a passion for teaching, training, and connecting with students and educators to support quality instruction within culturally and linguistically diverse classroom settings. In today's episode, she'll share about how her experience learning German in Vienna made a big impact on how she supports her multilingual learners today. Also, she's going to be sharing with us a brief breakdown of who our ELL students are, three easy ways to create a multilingual classroom to help all students feel comfortable, and what the rights of your ELL students are and where to begin to advocate for them. All right, now let's get to the show. Teaching ELL students is a privilege and a joy. Is it easy? No way. But with the right support, you can feel empowered to tackle each day with ease and confidence. I'm your host, Beth Boucher, founder of Inspiring Young Learners. With over 10 years of teaching both nationally and internationally, I know what it takes to ensure that your ELL students have what they need to thrive today, tomorrow, and for life. I'm on a mission to empower you to equip your English language learners. Welcome to Equipping ELLs. Let's get to today's episode. Hey, Brooke, welcome to the show. We're so excited that you're here with us today. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Why don't you share a little bit about yourself and your own language learning journey? Yeah, so a lot of people don't know. I speak Spanish and I interpret for our families all the time, modify content in Spanish, and people assume it is my second language. It is actually not my second language. Um, German is my second language. (laughs) When I was in high school, I had the opportunity to go and live abroad, and I lived with a family in Vienna, Austria for a year and went to high school over there. And that was my first experience with speaking language in another country. I had taken German for four years in the United States, had scored, and then had 103 in the class when I 
went abroad and I thought, you know, I got this. Like I stepped off the plane. I was like, this is going to be great. I know German. I'm going to be fine. And as soon as I didn't know where to find my host family and had to talk to somebody, I completely froze. I was like, I know nothing. And I was like, okay, this is, this is going to be my year. We're, we're going to make it through. And that, that was really my first experience getting off that plane, 15 years old, in a foreign country, completely alone, and trying to figure out where to find my host family. The last time I was in an airport before that was before 9-11. So people could come to your gate, they would get you, and it was no problem. So I, that was what I was expecting, and I could not find them anywhere. So I did go up to somebody, do you speak English? And someone helped me out. But that was not the end of my language learning journey in Austria. That was really my first introduction into the difference between social language and academic language. You know, in our language learning classes in the United States, when we teach foreign language, we don't teach academic language. We teach, you know, basic interpersonal communication skills. And when I was put into 11th grade classes, I did not know any of those terms in German. And some of them I didn't even know in Spanish or in English because our education systems are so different. So I hadn't even taken a pre-calculus course in the United States and I was in a calculus course. And they had no program, no support. This was the first time they were really getting an exchange student who had little German background. So People made really detrimental assumptions about my intelligence based off of my linguistic abilities. And that's something I, I share with a lot of my teachers that I've, I've personally been through this. I know what it feels like when I was there, we had to do something called a Bruce practice Woche, which translates, <laughs> translates to a professional work week. And we had to go try out a job for a week. And I wanted to study international law at the time. I was always fascinated with the world, other cultures, other people. I remember my host mom specifically saying, you're not smart enough to do that. Again, because she didn't know my, what I knew in English. She only knew what I knew in German. And that unfortunately is what a lot of our kids, you know, now our multilingual learners in the United States are facing content teachers don't understand that just because they don't know it in English doesn't mean they don't know it. And their, their version of German as a second language, once a week, I would go down to the second grade class and read stories with the second graders, which as a sophomore in high school or a junior in high school, that was, you know, it took a little bruise to my ego a little bit. I was like, I did not want to go down and hang out with the second graders, but that, that was their solution. And, you know, everybody let me sit there and play games. No one really tried to help me or accommodate for me. It was just assumed, oh, you don't have to do any of this. And somebody like me, who I love to learn, I, I enjoy school. I'm on my like 24th year of school at this point. I want to keep going. Like, I don't want to stop. I'm just collecting those degrees. It, it was really, it was really hard for me. And it really, it took me a long time to kind of come back from that. I had issues with my self-esteem thinking I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. And yeah, so that, and that's exactly what our kids are going through here. And, you know, especially my students, I, I never want them to have to feel that way. Yeah. What a powerful experience that you had, even though it was hard and it, it had some, you know, wounds that stuck with you for a while, but experiencing what so many of our students experience, you know, from the moment you stepped off that plane 
and what our newcomers experience when they are just in a completely new world that's so different from where they're coming from and not sure even what to do. I, you know, even showing up at school, not sure where the classroom is, all these things. When we have an experience at ourselves, it's really hard for us to put ourselves in those shoes. So what a powerful experience that you had that has really, you know, catapulted you into this whole other area of being an advocate for these students so that our students don't feel like you did, you know, that, well, because of your language level, your intelligence level is also very low, you know, and, and sadly, that's, a widespread feeling, whether people say it or not, you know, we have, we have those biases and that's something we need to address first is to see, are we putting that on our students? Are we immediately thinking that their intelligence is low because they're learning English, you know, instead of, wow, they already know another language and they're taking on another language, or maybe they already know two or three other languages and seeing, you know, having that that assets-based approach over the deficits-based. So, wow, thank you for sharing that, Brooke. That was an incredible story. Now, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, let's just start with some of those breakdown of who are our students that we're experiencing, because you talked a little bit about, you know, foreign language, how it's being taught in the U.S. and how, you know, you went abroad and you are an exchange student. And so there's a lot of different ways of language learning and the students that we might have in our classroom. So do you mind sharing a little bit more about the types of English language learners that, you know, teachers might have in their classroom? Yeah. So I, I'm probably going to use the term multilingual learner the most in this podcast. My district has not adopted it yet, but my state is starting to, and it's really promoting that assets-based language we're all English language learners. So why would we call, you know, native speakers? Why would we separate the two? So I prefer the term multilingual learner, especially as you mentioned, a lot of my kids speak four or five different languages. So I will use that term to describe our learners. Also a big population is our SIFS life students. So students with limited or informal, students with limited or interrupted formal education So students who are missing gaps in their schooling, which we usually see with the refugee populations, students who are coming here to escape political trauma, war-torn countries, things like that. I also, I work with a lot of NATO students. So I work near one of the largest naval bases in the world. We do a lot of exchange programs with military families who are here on tour. So if I say NATO, it's, it's our mostly European military. I also mentioned the difference between Bix and Kelp earlier. So the difference between your basic interpersonal communication skills or your playground language versus your cognitive academic language proficiency, which is the language you need to um, learn content. Is there any other one you want me to briefly touch on? That's, that's great. Yeah. I can, I can acronym all day. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we know there's so many acronyms. So let's, we'll just touch the surface with that. And I think, you know, a lot of times in my experience, we've been abroad for nine years. We live in Panama City, Panama. And similar to your experience, you know, I had a lot of background in Spanish. I had a minor in Spanish. I I learned the academic, the calps of Spanish, but I didn't learn the BICs. I came here and really could not communicate. I had to learn from scratch again how to communicate because in my head, I'm translating all and conjugating all these verbs because I had all the charts and I knew how to do it all. But in conversation, that doesn't matter. People are not going to slow down and wait for you to conjugate a verb. And the conversation's already gone by and you're like, wait, okay. You know, and it really was frustrating because I thought I have 10 years of Spanish. Why is this so difficult for me? And I would see somebody who just picked up 
Spanish being here, you know, and in conversation, and they were almost better off than me because they had context and they knew, you know, when I'm at the store, I use this phrase and I'm trying to do everything with an academic view. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. What, what are they saying? You know, even yesterday I was at the store and they said, like, cancelalo, like, are you ready to, to pay? And I'm thinking like, cancelarlo, what does that word even mean? Like, that doesn't mean pay. Why are you saying pagarlo, you know? And so it's just kind of, especially in different countries, they have different idioms and things that are said. The same thing in the U.S. We speak in so many different, you know, short phrases and we expect people to get it. We expect the kids to get it. But we really need to focus too on helping our ELL, our multilingual learners, like you're saying, to communicate, to have that confidence to communicate. Because even if they have all the academic, they're going to lose it if they're not communicating often. And that's going to really build them the skills they need to be able to communicate. Absolutely. And you touched on two really important important points there. That slang language, our colloquial dialect. I have three students from Germany who, I'm going to be honest, they're bored in school because of German schools. They've already learned most of the content and the grade that they're placed in. And they're in advanced English and they do, you know, they score better than most of our native speaking kids because their metalinguistic awareness is so much better. And yesterday we were sitting, we were talking about writing an essay and the kids kept mentioning a full ride, we're talking about scholarships. And one of them turned to me, they're like, where are we going? I was like, what? I was so confused. They're like, you said a full ride, like that's full, but like, where are we going? And I had to explain like, so even our students who, you know, they test out, they seem proficient, they're scoring higher. We have to be very careful when we're using those cultural terms. Don't not use them, absolutely use them because that's part of, you know, assimilating with our society and learning about our culture, but make sure you're explicitly explaining what you're saying. The other point that you made is that, you know, that focus on oracy. Most of our learners are sitting in classrooms. They're not speaking for 95% of the day. The only time they're speaking is when they're with an ESL teacher, they're being pulled out and they're in a small group. So they don't, they don't develop those conversational skills. And I saw it a lot with my refugee population when I used to work in New York. They could write papers. They were getting put in the IB program. But if they had to interview for a job or if they had to you know, communicate their point orally, their speaking scores were some of their area, their biggest areas of weakness. And so that's something we really need to make sure we're focusing on is making sure they're using that oral language as frequently as possible. Exactly. And, and that's so true. You know, 95% of their day, they're sitting, not speaking. And we, I'm sure you can experience the same thing. If you do not use a language, you lose it. You know, every time I go back to the U S and I even two weeks of not speaking Spanish where every day here, I'm speaking it. I come back and I, oh, I, I really have to change the chip. I, I'm rusty. I have to get back into it. And the same thing's happening with our students. If they are not using it every day and applying what they're learning, it's not going to stick. They're going to lose it. And it's going to be frustrating for them. All right. So Brooke, you have an incredible Instagram and you share so many amazing tips and tricks and really easy and simple ways that we can create multilingual classrooms, you know, really supporting our multilingual students in the classroom. So I'd love for you to share some, you know, quick and easy ways that any teacher, whether you have experience working with ELLs or not, that you can help develop that classroom that's going to help all your students feel really comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. So my Instagram, I 
actually gear it towards content teachers. I try to break everything down, try not to use too much of our vernacular. And if I do, I explicitly explain it. That's one of my passion. Not that I don't like helping other ESL teachers. I do, absolutely. Um, That's also equally as important. Uh, But my passion is in breaking down content and helping those content teachers. So what the three... I kind of base it in three areas on making a multicultural environment. So the first thing when a teacher gets a newcomer, someone who just arrived to the United States, they're like, all right, well, how do I modify instruction? And I'm like, well, we got to take like four steps back. (laughs) Yes, we need to modify instruction, but there's so many more important things we need to address first. And one of those comes in the actual physical setting of your classroom. And this can be as simple as your classroom decor. So one of the first things you see when you walk into my classroom is this big display. It says, we are multilingual. What is your superpower? And it has a bunch of multicultural superheroes under it. And I want my kids to have that mindset. And I'm even trying to train my teachers to have that mindset. Being multilingual opens up so many doors for our students. It just, we need to have that asset space. This is a good thing. It's not hindering their learning. It's not hindering their language acquisition in English. Like this is a skill and we need to empower our students to embrace that skill. So creating that mindset in your classroom And that starts with the actual physical environment. It starts with the way you talk to your students. If the first thing I walk a kid into your classroom and you're like, oh no, like it's Miss Boutwell, they're an English language learner. They might not be able to understand the words you're saying, but they know exactly the tone you're using, your body language, your facial expressions, even with a mask on, these can read your facial expressions. So making sure you are embracing, you know, you are welcome here. This is a safe space for you. We have this saying in education, I say it all the time, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs before Bloom's taxonomy. We need to make sure these kids are safe and supported. They're not going to want to learn from you. They are not going to feel safe to take risks in your classroom if they don't feel supported. I also have an alphabet. It's linked in my Instagram, which I'll share with you at the end. It is, I, I mean, all ESL teachers, I feel like we have alphabets up on our classroom. So I actually made one and every letter is either a famous first generation or second generation immigrant. So students can see even just on your walls that they are represented, that they are welcomed. The first day I put it up, I had a girl from India walk in and she saw Malala and she freaked out. She was so excited. It ended up, we turned it into a book study where she read her book and she drew me this gorgeous drawing for the wall. So you never know what's going to incite that desire to learn. I also have everything labeled in my classroom and I'm starting to move beyond my classroom and make labels for the school with all the, you know, basic school vocabulary in the multilingual phrases. I'm going to warn you though, check with your state laws. I know some states you actually cannot do that. I know in Florida, if you have students who speak more than one language in your school, you would have to have it in every single language that your students speak. All states are different. I know there's still English only states. I'm not trying to get you in trouble. So just (laughs) check with your state laws before you do that. So just really creating that environment where kids see themselves, they see themselves represented. They understand, okay, I'm welcome here. I'm accepted here. I feel comfortable. Now I'm going to be able to learn here. Exactly. Yes. I 100% agree with all those things, you know, walking into a classroom and even 
I share with people having a sign that says welcome in their native language that speaks so much to them to see that there's something that's familiar to them and that you are, are making that, you know, setting that from the start that you are welcome here. Like you said, that, that we appreciate, we support, we value that you speak another language. How many students have we seen who really are embarrassed and ashamed that they're, they speak another language at home and they don't want to speak it. And so how can we shift our education system where now the, it is a superpower. And the reality is, I think it's, I looked at a statistic the other day, it was like 71% of the world speaks more than one language. I mean, everywhere else, people, it's common, it's expected. And so this is what we, as an educational system, this needs to be what we focus on is that this is a gift and it's a superpower. And we learn right alongside them. If you're a teacher that you don't speak another language, that's, that's okay. But having an open heart and being humble and saying, hey, will you teach? How do we say this word in your native language? If they feel comfortable with that. We also don't want to put our students on the spot. Some maybe don't feel comfortable with that. And so it's, it's building that relationship and knowing your students. So you know who wants to share, who wants to feel comfortable. Maybe sharing about their culture you know, brings up some bad memories right now. Maybe it's, it's really scarring to them and they don't feel comfortable sharing about it. And so you, you need to know that. And you know that by building relationships with your students and making those relationships the top priority before any learning can happen. Like you mentioned. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that comes down to, you know, that's just best teaching for anybody. Get exactly. Students. I had a problem in New York. One of the the teacher, the content teacher meant so well. We, I had a huge refugee population. So she wanted to teach the novel refugee with them. And overall it was, it was great. Most of the kids, you know, had a really great experience, loved learning about it. They made amazing connections, but we had one student who newly arrived who all that trauma was still fresh in his mind. And she meant well, and she thought she was doing all the right things, but just for that one student, it was too much for him. So make sure, even though you think you're doing the right things and you know, you're, you think you're being, you know, culturally responsive to your students, you think this is going to be great. Make sure you actually check in with your students and get to know them first. Exactly. And I think that's a good point to mention is, you know, a lot of teachers are experiencing having new students from different cultures that maybe they haven't worked with before. And so I know so many want to do what's best for them, but ask, ask the community, ask different Facebook groups you're in and see, is this, you know, I saw the other day in a Facebook group, someone was talking about setting up a prayer room for the Muslim students that they were receiving. They were getting Muslim students for the first time. And it was really insightful to see through the lens of a Muslim teacher, if that was appropriate or not and how to go about it. And so I think that's really important is as teachers, we want to do what's best for our students, but but ask around before you think this is what's culturally responsive to the student. It might not be, or it might not be what they need to really feel support. And even so the teachers with the best intentions, we still have our own biases that we're you know, not even aware of. So we're still bringing in, okay, so we're interpreting their culture from our point of view. Exactly. We need to understand it from their point of view. Right. Yep, exactly. All right. Now, you mentioned right earlier on that you wanted to be international law. <laughs> and you really are kind of doing that through education. I mean, you've really taken on a role of, of advocating for the rights of multilingual learners. So I'd love for you to share a little bit more because I think this is a really great area for many of us as teachers, you know, just what our students supposed to receive what is, and I know state by state, it is different, but 
you know, would you share a little bit more about that and maybe where people can find more information if they want to learn? Absolutely. Yeah. So I did kind of come full circle. I went into education to make sure students never felt the way that I did. I got my master's degree in New York. It's required for teachers to have a master's degree. And then, like I said, I love learning. So I wanted to keep learning. And I actually started out in three different doctoral programs. I'm fascinated by everything. I want to know everything there is to know about learning languages and different cultures and how to best teach our students. And it was really hard for me to be like, okay, is this something I actually want to pursue as a career? Or is this something I'm just interested in studying as like a hobby on the side? And I finally came back to my my love for, you know, the law, as weird as that sounds. <laughs> we need people um, like you. <laughs> so, I mean, I find myself saying on so many different days, you're breaking federal compliance. You're breaking state compliance. Even something as simply, simple as creating a schedule for your student. You have to know what the student is entitled to and what they're not entitled to. We got a, in a huge kind of tiff with the state in New York one year because we had a newcomer who was safe and there was a miscommunication with, you know, with the other ESL teacher and the counselors on what classes he had to be enrolled in because they wanted to make a safe friendly schedule, which included a lot of PE and gym, or PE, gym and art, which is not legal. It's not what's best for that student. So again, even though the teacher had the best intentions in mind, you have to understand that we are confined by regulations. So yes, I am working on my doctorate in uh, education law and I'm studying the hidden agendas behind our language policy. We are a monolingual society here in the United States and our laws are written to promote that and to support that. Every state's different, but it starts at that federal level. And then as you analyze state laws, it continues into there. We are really pushing a monolingual society and that's not what is best for no. anybody. No, <laughs> not even for our monolingual students. <laughs> exactly. Our kids need windows and mirrors. They need to see themselves, but they also need to see other people's viewpoints. We need to teach empathy. We need to teach those skills. And by pushing the majority monolingual, English is the most important. English has the highest status. That's undoing all that, that stuff we know that is good for everybody in our society. And one of the biggest issues I'm having, I so I'm a military spouse. I've moved all over the country. But in New York, we have our own set of ESL standards. We don't use WIDA standards, which is what students do use. And I absolutely loved it. It was so clear cut. And one of the best things was it identified minutes of service per student minimum minutes of service per student. And for example, if you had a newcomer brand new, a level one to two on the WIDA scale, they were required to have a pullout instruction every single day. We called it standalone classes. So they actually had an ESL class scheduled where we could focus on learning those BICS words and we could focus on speaking and things like that. But then they also had an ESL teacher in one, at least one of their content area classes to help that teacher modify, to produce that academic language. And that was required. That was the minimum requirement. And it was minutes. You had to have exactly this many minutes per week. Then I moved to Texas, which also has a pretty decent system. Then I moved to Virginia and there's no there's no requirements. There's no guidelines. There's nothing that says you have to support this kid this many minutes a week. 
and I'm itinerant between two schools. And so I don't even see my kids every single day. And that that's something that's really hard for me because in New York, it's so clearly defined in the law, but it's not here. And it's, it brings up the equity question. Like why is a student in Virginia who has an itinerant teacher getting less support than a student in um, Virginia who doesn't, who has a full-time ESL teacher? Why is a student who was placed in Virginia getting so much less service than a student who's placed in New York? It, it just creates this huge inequity and it's, you know, it's promoted and supported by the laws that we, that we have. So that's something I'm really interested in. I would, I would love to change all the laws. <laughs> all right, everybody look out for Brooke to run for president. <laughs> Oh, no, I would never want to be president. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need someone like you to be at least secretary of education, right? <laughs> yeah. But I, I totally understand what you're saying. You know, we have a girl in, our, in my membership who's in New York and her sharing, she did a co-teaching session and it was so insightful. And she said, you know, in New York, I co-teach because it's, we have to, and it's gone well. And so it's very interesting to talk with teachers from all around the country because most are not experiencing that same support. I think New York is definitely the front runner of, you know, what they're doing to help multilingual learners, the what they're putting in place to make sure that teachers, content teachers are getting the support with co-teaching, with push-in, and they're more clear on what they need to be doing, which we we just all are asking for clarity. <laughs> we want to help. And but we also I think there's I've talked to so many teachers lately that I have had growth of, you know, one teacher's in Massachusetts, I think. And she went from 45 students to 68 in two weeks. And it's, I mean, we just, teachers cannot handle that many students. Another one is, has 150 and that's every day she's in a different school. And so how can those teachers who really are just under the weight of not being supported, their, you know, their districts are not doing anything that's really helping our multilingual learners. What would you recommend for those teachers to start to, you know, have those conversations? It definitely starts with scheduling, creating an equitable schedule, not only for the students, but also for you. If you can get those students clustered together so that you're able to work with, you know, only one or two teachers or, you know, I support 140 teachers on paper, but that's completely unrealistic, right? I can't actually... 140 teachers, but I actually physically am in the classroom co-teaching with only about four, which makes it so much easier. I also modify content for other teachers that I'm not in their in their classrooms. And once you show, and I've I've noticed this, once you show them a, like a four or five basic strategies that they can do, a mo- it's good teaching, right? Teach the teachers model it for them, say, okay, here's your assignment. This is what I did to it. Then sit down with them, do it together. Then they kind of get in a role with it and can kind of figure it out and do it on their own. A lot easier said than done, finding that time to sit down with teachers, finding teachers that want to sit down with you is also not the easiest. A lot of teachers just want you to do it for them, but you know, push that like, no, we need to be self-sufficient, independent learners like you do too. So just, you know, making sure you're, and even having your kids clustered together is great for the kids too. You know, putting them in those groups where they feel comfortable talking to each other. If they share the same home language, that's even better. 
I have a lot of students who have either tested out of the program or are close to testing out and they want to sit and teach the newcomers everything because one, they're proud that they are bilingual at this and biliterate at this point and they want to show that off. And two, they're like, I was you not that long ago. Like this is where, you know, you can grow to having them together. makes it easier on the kids. It makes it easier on the teachers. So, you know, really getting them to be clustered together like that has been, that's what saves me. I would love also to do more professional development with my teachers, giving those them those strategies. And, you know, honestly, it comes down to a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge on what English language learners are, what multilingual languages are, what they need. They just never got that education. And that's not necessarily their fault. Our, our teacher uh, preparation programs don't do anything that maybe they take class here or there in New York. You actually have to have, you know, your ESL degree to be an ESL teacher here. You just need a certificate. So not even all of our ESL teachers know everything. So it's all about taking the time to develop yourself professionally and learn on your own best strategies. We are actually not allowed to do professional development this year because of COVID and everything like the teachers are going through. Hopefully next year, I definitely want to, you know, once a month offer a session to my teachers. And honestly, even if it's just a time where they can come to me and explain their frustrations and explain what they're seeing, and we can just, you know, just talk. I don't even have to present a formal lesson or a formal presentation, but sometimes they just need to talk about things and you just need to be like, oh, okay, what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is this, and that's happening because of this. They, they just don't have that knowledge. Sorry, I know I'm talking a lot. <laughs> no, it's so good. And yeah, I, I think going with what you're saying of, you know, not looking at the homeroom teachers or content teachers as a student, but, but also supporting them by modeling. And I think that's a powerful way if you can even say, let me take this lesson off of your back. Let me do a lesson. Let me show you how to, like, here's two or three strategies that you can put in your back pocket and pull out. Because I do think they'll see, okay, I can do this. Like, let's just stick with these two strategies. And, you know, here's sentence stems. Here's how you use them. Here's why this is so helpful. Because when your students sit there with a blank face and don't know what to write, it helps them get over that writer's block. And guess what? You're going to see that they can produce something by just giving them a sentence start. I think a lot of them too, it's helping them understand scaffolds are not watering down the curriculum or it's not giving them, you know, making it easier for them. It's just removing that hindrance of that language block and helping them to produce what you're asking them to do. And you're going to be able to see what they know instead of, you know, not giving them that support. And, and like you said, and I say all the time too, what is good for, when we teach with our ELLs in mind, all of our students succeed. All of our students, our monolingual students need, lang- they need sentence stems. They need academic language stems. They need word banks. All of our students are learning academic language. So these things are helpful for all of our students. <laughs> I was in a social studies meeting one day and one of the teachers turned to me and he's like, you probably, like, I, you probably have the answer. I'm like, Probably. (laughs) He's like, I don't have any multilingual learners in my classroom, but you know, I'm having my students write an essay about cause and effect and they just, they're not writing anything and what they're writing doesn't make sense. And I, I simply said, have you taught them the language of cause and effect? Do they know what that actually looks like on a piece of paper? And he's like, well, if they're in ninth grade, they should know that. I'm like, absolutely not. 
And just because they should know something doesn't mean that they do know something. So I actually went into his classroom and broke it down with him and taught the students the language of cause and effect, gave all the students sentence stems. I even gave them some of them a fill in the blank essay, which are all great scaffolds for multilingual learners. And he didn't have any multilingual learners in that classroom. But at the end of that class, almost all those kids had essays. What is good for them is good for everyone. ESL is just best teaching practices. Exactly. And the exactly. more you know, <laughs> all students are going to benefit. Awesome. This has been so wonderful, Brooke. Before we head out, can you share where people can find you and, and connect with you? Yes, I am on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Boutwell Misses, no capitals, no underscores. And then my Instagram is at Miss underscore bilingual underscore B with two E's like the, the bug. <laughs> and we will put those in the show notes. People can click directly below. And we'll also include a link to that alphabet posters that you were talking about, because those would be a wonderful aid in any classroom. So, well, thank you so much, Brooke. This has been an absolute pleasure. And everybody keep on keeping on. Do what's best for all your students by keeping teaching with your ELLs in mind. So, all right. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks for having me. Yes. Don't forget that I'm celebrating this new podcast with a giveaway of five $25 TPT gift cards, plus one grand prize winner of my course, ELL Strategy Academy, a year subscription to my membership, Equipping ELLs, and a $50 TPT gift card. I've made it super easy for you to enter. All you need to do is follow, rate, and write a review on Apple Podcast. Make sure to screenshot your review and send it to me in an email or an instant message on Instagram. For bonus entries, leave more reviews on each of the episodes available and tag me on Instagram with your favorite episode that you've heard so far. Thank you for joining me in today's episode. All links and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you're looking for even more support and done-for-you resources created specifically for the needs of ELLs, head to inspiringyounglearners.com. I'll catch you here next week. Until then, take that next step to keep equipping your ELLs.